Wow. What a privilege as we come again to the Lord's table tonight, communion. And it's no accident that we're beginning missions emphasis this week, I mean this month. And you think about it, it's a fitting thing that we, as we think of the gospel of Christ, we, we um, sit at the feet of Christ. And Jesus prepares the table every time, doesn't he? So let's pray and ask the Lord to just prepare our hearts for this time. Father, we thank you that you have been merciful to us. We have a tendency, Lord, to overestimate ourselves and to think, Lord, more highly than we ought. And, but then, Lord, when we realize that you know the full state of our hearts, you know our sinfulness, and then you loved us anyway, to not just despite our sin, but because of our sin, you sent your son so that you would take away our sins. What a, what a staggering thought it is that you are the, the Lord who cleanses us. And it's Lord at the Lord's Supper, we remember the death of Christ and Lord to proclaim this death until he comes. So Lord, as we consider uh, again, uh, Christ and the gospel, would you just uh, help me, Lord, to get out of the way and Lord, that people, that we would all receive your word uh, tonight as we prepare for the Lord's Supper in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you probably saw, the theme for this week, uh, or the theme for this mission's emphasis is simply uh, compelled by the gospel. And Bill uh, brought us to Romans 16 this morning, and I'm going to continue. If you can turn to Romans 10, we're going to be in Romans 10 uh, for uh, tonight. But the, the question, the theme raises a very simple question, one question. And it's, and I think Phil asked this question this morning, are we compelled by the gospel? Am I Am I compelled by the gospel? And don't be so quick to answer that question because the word compel is actually from Webster. It's defined as to force or drive to a course of action. To be compelled is to be driven to a certain course. So if we ask as a church, are we compelled by the gospel? It's really to ask, does the gospel drive us to do a certain way of church? Are we a church that's driven by the gospel or by ministries or by uh, routines? I mean, it's a good question. Am I compelled by the gospel? And it's a question I'm going to raise today, and it's what Paul raises in this section in the middle of Romans 10. Now, I know you might assume that I'm going to go to 1014 because this is the classic missions text, right? Look at verse 14. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they're sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Notice that that text from Isaiah is really saying that that, um, a church is compelled by Christ's mission is sort of tied to where your feet go. You know, our feet is, is the places that direct us and where we're moving and what drives us. I mean, our feet take us to places, right? 
but it says how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. I mean, Paul, I mean, Paul uh, uh, this morning said it's my gospel. Paul owned the gospel because he was compelled by the gospel. But I actually don't want to uh, start at that place in, in that section of Romans 10. Because if you go up to the, the beginning verse in chapter 1, you'll notice that Paul is saying, My heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is their salvation. Paul is burdened with a great sorrow and unceasing grief for the hardened heart of his brethren and the kindred, the Israelites who had the promises but rejected Christ. Can you have Christ, who is the sum of all of God's promises, especially that your sins can be forgiven, and then reject the gift of God? The question Paul asks in, in chapter 9 is the Israelites, these are the sons of covenant. They were given the law and the promises. And from whom is Christ? Has the word of God failed? Because it's seemingly their rejection is the staggering question that Paul is addressing in the middle of Romans. So before we can get to the part of sending the gospel to others, we got to go back and address another question. Before we can take this question, what would compel us to take the gospel to the Afghan IMAC people, which I mentioned last week, a people that has 0% Christians, Paul wants you to grapple with an even more fundamental question. Are you yourself compelled by the gospel in your life. I mean, the whole book opens up with Paul saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Paul was compelled by the gospel. And he's writing this whole epistle because he wants the church in Rome to be compelled by the gospel. As we heard this morning, to even help Paul on his way to Spain, because there are people that had not heard the gospel. But here we are in the middle of the book of Romans in chapter 9 through 11, and many people misunderstood this as a parenthesis in Paul's argument. Like, why is he now going to Israel and their rejection and election? And some are elect, and God shows mercy to some, and others he doesn't. And then why is it that, that he is pausing, as it were, and saying, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Why their unbelief? Did God's word fail? Can God's word fail? Where in Isaiah it says, God sends his word and it will not return void. So how does this section tie into this gospel letter? And for us, as, a, as, as, as we are in this missions month and even in the Lord's Supper tonight, how does it apply to us? If God's chosen people, the one who possessed the law, could reject their own gospel, they could be not compelled to believe. Could it not happen even in the church? 
You know, Jesus has a way of directing our hearts to ask, where is our heart ticking? What's, what's driving us? That's compelled. What's compelling us? Many, many things vie for our hearts. There's this one story in Luke where Jesus is invited over to a Pharisee's house and Simon welcomes him in. I put quote marks around that. And in Luke 7, it says, he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined. And in the middle of that um, sort of dining party, you could say a woman, Luke says, a sinner, learned that he was reclining at the table at the Pharisee's house and she brought an alabaster vial, brought it in, stood beside him and behind him and then went to his feet, weeping with her tears. And she said, began wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing the feet with perfume. I, I can, can you picture Jesus around this table reclining and this woman, the, the sinner, literally the one everybody knows, should not be in this place. And Simon was thinking, if this man knew what sort of person this woman who is touching him, he, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this was. You remember that? He was thinking that. And Jesus just looks at Simon. And this is what, Jesus, we're all coming in from different places. I don't know what's in your heart. I don't know what you're, what's ticking in your heart. But Jesus just looks at Simon and says a simple question. Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon perks up and says, okay, go ahead, say it. You know, a moneylender had two debtors and one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. If you ever had credit card debt, um, those are 500 denarii would be um, just... <laughs> You're going to be paying interest for the rest of your life. It's, it's way beyond what you could pay. To, uh, it's literally 500 denarii um, is equivalent. A denarius was equivalent to a day's wages. So think about a whole year and more of wages that you're in debt. And then one guy had 50. And Jesus says, now they were both unable to repay, but he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more. And Simon said, well, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And Jesus said, you judge correctly. And then he turned to the woman. Simon is just left in the dust. Simon, the proud guy who was looking down at Jesus for, for just even welcoming a sinner. Jesus just turns to the woman and then he addresses everyone. Do you see this woman? I entered your house and Simon, you gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her, feet, her tears and have wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but since the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven for she loved much. But, and then he looks at Simon, 
He who is forgiven little loves little. A hard heart can come when we forget the plight and the desperation that we're in before a holy God. And to understand how much we're forgiven. And if we forget that, we love little. You see, I think at the heart of being compelled by the gospel is a bigger question is, do we believe what the gospel says about us? And do we see what the gospel says about our Lord and Savior? And so I want to start in chapter 9, verse 30, because he's going to start there. And he's going to do a series of contrasts in this section. But... But basically, we're going to walk through two truths of the gospel that we must believe so that we don't grow cold or hard. We don't be that unbelieving one. And that if, if we are not compelled by the gospel, we might ask that question, what am I not believing? And the Lord might even challenge us tonight as we take the Lord's Supper. Have we remembered why we come to this table and what the Lord has done? So here are the two points I want to make in this text. You'll see them pretty clearly. The first truth that we must be believe or see is how the gospel exposes that our greatest need is for a righteousness that we don't own. That is a declaration. Whenever you preach the gospel, it's saying there's, you're bankrupt. But secondly, we're going to see how the gospel is a summons to believe on Christ alone for the righteousness that God Requires. So look at how he begins with this first point. Let's begin reading with me in chapter 9, verse 30. But what shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel pursued a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? I mean, that is the question. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Who's the stumbling stone? It's the Lord Jesus himself. The stone that is the the rock that you could call the cornerstone of the church is also the stumbling stone when you don't believe. The same stone, cornerstone, stumbling stone. And he says, just as it is written, this is a prophecy from Isaiah. Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. God put Christ in the center of the, you could say the entire human race to make it clear that he is the sole place where you either stand or fall. You either believe to save salvation, or you don't believe. He who believes in him will not be disappointed. You know, Paul, no one can be saved by a religion of works. However hard you try, you might be one of those people who say, well, I'm not a, I'm not a works kind of guy. But let me tell you, you go traveling, you're going to find out that most of the world's religions are just basically different packages of of religious works. When I was in Myanmar, it's the, the Buddha that is presented 
food, literally, so that you can get good fortune in your life. Maybe you'll have more kids. And then you, I, I just remember them pouring milk over this, this gold Buddha. In Islam, they're coming into the month of Ramadan and they literally uh, say that we, people who are doing Ramadan say, it's sort of like a cleansing of our soul. We, we do this fast, this 30-day ritual so that, yeah, maybe we'll be prepared and maybe, just maybe. And then I found out that not just um, in China do they have ancestor worship, but even in Islam, I heard my daughter was telling me today that even there in uh, North Africa, many Muslims believe that they do these rituals and they pray for their dead ancestors so that it might help them in the afterlife. They have no assurance of salvation. But the whole book of Romans has been saying, the, and, and, and you could say it this way, you must give up any thought of contributing to your salvation by what you do. And you must trust in Jesus Christ and his work completely. Um, as one commentator says, Christ charged himself with the doing and he has left us with the believing. Once in an evangelistic crusade, an evangelist stopped the invitation and he asked for every Christian to witness to the person next to them. And a small little boy turned to a gentleman standing next to him and said, Mr., do you know Jesus as your personal savior? And very condescendingly, the man looked down at the little boy and replied, why, son, I'm an ordained deacon. With all the innocence of the world, the little boy said, Mister, it don't matter what you've done. God will save you anyway. It don't matter what you've done. God will save you anyway. Is that not the, ma- the message? The gospel says God justifies not those who deserve it, but those who are undeserving. So as we said, this, 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 the question of the contrast of Gentiles who were not pursuing righteousness they attained a righteousness. What, what they mean by attaining righteousness is they got right with God. Whereas the Jews who had the law blameless, you could say Paul said I was blameless in every matter of the law, they stumbled at one point. They never applied it to themselves. So Paul is bringing up um, in this context, God is God's unfailing. God's word didn't fail. He's going to define what unbelief does and why Israel did not enter in because of their unbelief. You see, Christ is, as we saw, not only the cornerstone of God's salvation, but he himself is the stumbling stone, as it says here, for those who don't believe. Some people will say, but what is it? What about election? It says, you know, he elects some and he doesn't elect others. He's not addressing election here. Notice he says, they didn't believe. They did not pursue it by faith. In other words, you can't use election to take away your accountability to believe what God has given. And Israel is being held accountable for their unbelief in this section. So Paul is stating in verse 30 that the Gentile peoples, the unclean, the sinner that comes to Jesus behind his feet, the people that we would say are on the outside, they who never had the advantage of God's prophetic word, it is those who somehow attained a right standing with God while Israel with all her advantages 
did not attain a right standing with God. It's like Paul is bringing up the reversal because he knows, he knows the mind of the person who believes works can save him. He was that. He was that before Christ said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? If you notice three times in Romans from 9.30 to 10, Paul explains why Gentiles are come in and Jews are cut off. And each time, notice it's justification by works versus justification by faith. So he wants us tonight to see what are you depending upon for you to be right with God? That matters. Notice Verse 30 to 32, what shall we say? The Gentiles who did not pursue it by faith. Notice the issue that divides is the righteousness that you count on. Whose righteousness are you counting on? Faith is not about just having this faith. Faith alone, faith in itself is not saving. It's what object you're placed, placing your faith in. It's like somebody going across the bridge. I believe that bridge is gonna hold me. Take a few steps and uh, it starts to shake and you, and you go, I, 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 I. I really believe it's going to hold me. And then you walk across that bridge. It's not your faith that somehow saved you. Somebody made a pretty good bridge. And some people have faith in bridges that don't help them. And they go falling to their destruction. So the issue here in uh, the first, the end of 30 to 32 is whose righteousness are you counting on for your standing before God? But notice in verses three to four, Paul says it again. Look at verse three, just as chapter 10, verse three, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. And then he, in verse four, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Again, Israel was trusting in their own righteousness and they stumbled. Verse five through eight. Again, notice the contrast in verses five and six. For Moses writes about the righteousness that's based on the law. The one who does the commandments shall live by them. Then notice the contrast in verse six. But the righteousness based on faith says, this is the dividing line, righteousness from law or righteousness from faith. So why are so many in Israel hardened? Why does Paul say, I could wish myself a curse for my brethren? Because they've hardened their heart because they took God's righteousness and brought it down to their level. Notice how verse three shows two things that made them stumble. Look at verse three. Not knowing about God's righteousness, that's the first thing. And number two, seeking to establish their own. Catch that? Not knowing about God's righteousness means they made excuses to somehow justify their own righteousness. See, this is not Israel. This is not just Israel. Every religion in the world, whether it be the message of Islam, Roman Catholicism, basically, Satan has used religion to keep people from saving faith. And it goes all the way back to Cain and Abel. Cain's angry. Why is Cain so angry? Do you remember that? Cain is angry that God favors his brother Abel, but Hebrews interprets it that one provided an offering by faith and Cain did not offer his offering by faith. 
And that is the essence of religion. Instead of faith, it's actually, look at all the things I'm doing. And why isn't anybody noticing me? And I'm getting tired of all the things. I, nobody notices me, me, me. Cain was angry because he didn't go to God via the humble, prostrate recognition that he goes by faith alone, not depending on his own works. On December 8th in 1934, John and Betty Stam were beheaded in China. And in Shanghai, they sent word to one of his, uh, a new 20-year-old missionary named Dick Willis had just arrived on the field in China. And when he heard about their beheading, he was said, will I too be captured and murdered? Am I going to die here too, Lord, alone? But then he, he later reflects on what he's doing in China and why he went. And he says, I was told I was doing an injustice to people to come to them as a Christian missionary. I want you to know I wouldn't turn over in bed for religion, but I would circle the world for the sake of the gospel. Another missionary gives us the the contrast that Paul's bringing out here is what are you trusting in? Religion or the gospel? And uh, a missionary, John Siemens, uh, in his book, The Supreme Task of the Church, compares religion with the gospel. Think about it this way. The religion is man-made. The gospel is God-given. Religion is what man does for God. The gospel is what God has done for man. Religion is man's search for God. The gospel is God's search for man. Religion is good views. The gospel is good news. Religion is good advice. The gospel is a glorious announcement. Religion takes man and leaves him as he is. The gospel takes a man as he is and makes him what he ought to be. Religion ends in outer reformation. The gospel ends in inner transformation. Religion whitewashes. The gospel washes white. Religion places the prime emphasis upon doing The gospel places the emphasis on a person. You can take Buddha out of Buddhism and Buddhism still remains with its four noble truths and its eightfold path. You can take Muhammad out of Islam and Islam is still intact with its five pillars of action and six articles of belief. But if you take Christ out of the gospel, there's nothing left. For the gospel is Christ. That's verse four. This is the consummation and the answer to why we, what can cause us to be compelled by the message of the gospel is verse four. Notice it says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This shows the great reason why God made the gospel the great divide. The verse literally reads, It fronts the telos word, which is the end. In your translation, it's the end of the law. But in the beginning, in the Greek, the the way it's emphasized, it's like this. The end of the law is Christ. 
for righteousness for all who believe. The law contains all of God's holy requirements for a right standing. And for Christ to be the end of the law, in one sense, you could say the, when he said it is finished and he breathes his last, it says in the gospels that the temple was veil was torn in two. So in some sense, you could say the Mosaic covenant was obsolete when the new covenant was ratified. But in the context of Romans, that word at the beginning, the end of the law, I think is a bad translation because it's all the way through. Paul has been saying what your greatest need is, is righteousness. Not more works, not doing this and not doing that. It's a righteousness that comes justification by faith alone. So I think telos could be translated fulfilled. Listen to how it would read. The fulfillment of the law is Christ. And what I mean by that is the fulfillment of the requirements of the law, God's righteousness can be met by no other. That is, Jesus alone is able to fulfill what God requires. Christ is the center of the gospel because God's righteous requirements have been fully satisfied. The debt of certification has been paid. Our debts are paid in full. It is finished. Tell us, Ty. God is satisfied. I love that. Christ, the end, the fulfillment of the law's requirements is Christ. Chapter 3, we heard this morning, redemption is the, the ground. Redemption is the blood of Christ shed. When we take this cup, Tonight, Jesus says, remember, remember what I did in laying my life down for you. You didn't have what that righteousness. Oh, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You get poor in spirit when you realize you're bankrupt. You don't have what it takes to be right with God. You've blown it over and over and over. And suddenly Jesus extends the cup and says to the disciples, drink. Remember, this is the blood of the covenant that I'm shedding for you. Israel missed the point. And you say, I began with the question, am I compelled by the gospel? Have you forgotten? Have you forgotten from whence you came? It is designed by Christ to come to this table so we remember and don't get proud in our self-sufficiency. We always come back, Christ alone. It's his blood and his body shed for me. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live by what? Faith. It's a faith that continues to believe that his righteousness is what saved me. I had nothing to bring to the table. Jesus prepares the table. Oh man. Uh, You know, I, I read a book by uh, Gilbert on what is the gospel. And he brings out something very interesting that I think is apropos. And, and I asked the question, so how could Israel miss this? How could they miss 
their Messiah. As Jesus is coming down, he says, oh, if, if I could wrap my wings, how often I would have gathered you. But their hardness of heart and unbelief tied in with their pride because they couldn't see that their righteousness was bankrupt. But, bi- but bigger than that, in verse 3 it says, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. They create a God, you create a God in your own image, you can make yourself sort of appear like, hey, everything's okay. Greg Gilbert in his book, um, What is the Gospel, says, let me introduce you to God, and he uses lowercase. This is the way some people think of God. You might want to lower your voice a little before we go in. He might be sleeping now. He's old, you know, and doesn't much understand what this newfangled modern world, his golden days, the ones where he talked about when you really get him going, were a long time ago before most of us were even born. That was back when people cared about what he thought about things and considered him pretty important to their lives. Of course, all that's changed now, though. And God, poor fellow, just never adjusted well. Life's moved on and passed him by now. He just spends most of his time hanging out in the garden out back. I go there sometimes and see him, and there we tarry, walk around. In a way, a lot of people still like him, it seems. Or at least he manages to keep his poll numbers pretty high. And you'd be surprised how many people have been dropped by to visit and ask for things every once in a while. But of course, that's all right with him. He's here to help, thank goodness. All the crankiness you read about sometimes in those old books... You know, about having the earth swallow people up, raining fire down on cities, that sort of thing. All that seems to have been faded in his old age. Now he's just a good-natured, low-maintenance friend who's really easy to talk to, especially since he's almost never talked back. And when he does, it's usually to tell me through some slightly weird sign that what I want to do regardless is all right by him. That really is the best kind of friend, isn't it? You know, the best thing, though, he doesn't judge me ever for anything. Oh, for sure, I know that deep down he wishes I'd be better, but more loving, less selfish. But he's realistic. He knows I'm human and nobody's perfect, and I'm totally sure he's fine with that. And I'd like to think of love as never judging, only forgiving. That's the God I know, and I wouldn't have him any other way. Okay? Okay? And don't worry, we don't have to stay long. We can go in. Really, he's just grateful for any time he can get. Is that how you think about God? Because if you don't see the degree in which you're offense before a holy God, God is a holy God. His righteousness is not a side thing. Justice and righteousness is at the foundation of his throne. The Father sent the Son because... He is a righteous God and the one and the only one who could placard God's righteousness is his holy son. Is your God too small? Perhaps that's why we're not compelled by the gospel. Because God is a judge, a righteous judge. And we all fall short of the glory of God. Luther couldn't get over the, the phrase, the righteousness of God. He, he read it over and over again in Romans 1.16. It says, the gospel is the power of God, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Here's, a, here's the words of Luther as he was struggling, because he didn't put God into that category. He recognized God is a holy God. 
Our culture today has flipped it. But Luther couldn't get over the fact that this God, that his righteousness was an enemy to him because he knew that he violated at the core God's standard. I, blameless monk that I was, felt that before God I was a sinner with an extremely troubled conscience. And I couldn't be sure that God was appeased by my satisfaction. No, I didn't love I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. Why does God heap sorrow upon sorrow through the gospel and then through the gospel threaten us with his righteousness and his, and his wrath? And then here's something that's interesting. He kept meditating on that verse and he says, as I kept meditating on these words, at last by the mercies of God, I paid attention to their context. The righteousness of God is revealed in it as it is written, the righteous person lives by faith. I began to understand that in this verse, the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous person lives by a gift of God. That is by faith. I began to understand that this verse means the righteousness of God is revealed through the gospel is that which a merciful God justifies us by faith. And then Luther goes, all at once, I felt I had been born again and I entered into paradise. Immediately, see, I I saw the scripture in a different light. I exalted the sweetest words of mine, the righteousness of God with as much love as before I had hated it. God's righteousness comes packaged in your savior. That is the gift of God. The fulfillment of the law is Christ for righteousness, freely given to all who believe. So that's the first truth that that we must be gripped by. And that truth that God's righteousness is found fulfilled in Christ is the glaring center of the gospel. But In verses 9 to 13, Paul's second point, he expands on verse 4 to bring home the message of the gospel, points to Christ alone as the conscious focus of all saving faith. And I want you to notice how he ends the section. Look at verse 13. He's quoting Joel, the same quote that Peter quotes on the day of Pentecost, where he says, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This means the gospel not only exposes your bankrupt righteousness so that you hang your head in despair and go, where do I go? But the gospel summons you and he summons me and he summons each of us personally to exercise the kind of faith that calls on Christ alone for his righteousness. Hear hear me. Your parents can't save you, kid. You've been coming to church you know you've been grappling with what, 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 what how am I, what, what's going to happen? I, I don't know. I feel saved one day and I don't feel another day. Listen closely. Paul's going to make a very clear, don't look at your works. Look by faith at the righteousness that Christ gives. He's, he's, he's going on and expanding on verse 4. And he uses Moses to say, Moses writes that the man who practices must live by that righteousness. But verse six says, the righteousness based on faith 
says, do not say in your heart who will ascend. That is to bring Christ down. Who will descend into the abyss. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Notice that Paul is using the language of Deuteronomy to bring out the fact that faith isn't something that you have to do and go get. Christ has done it. Wherever the commandment is, Christ is in its place. Christ is the one who came down and Christ is the one who has risen. So what does the righteousness based on faith say? And this is where he says, that is the word of faith which we are preaching that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There it is, right there. Faith is a confession with your mouth that comes from what you believe in your heart. Notice how he reverses the word in verse 10. For with a heart, a person believes, resulting in what? Righteousness. But with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. What do you believe? First, Jesus is Lord. The first truth, Jesus is Lord, was a confession that many were willing to die for. Who is the one who died and took your place? Who is the one who sets the table for it? In the Greek version of the Old Testament, the word kyrios for Lord is translated as God, Yahweh. It is used that way 6,000 times. Paul uses the word kurios in this book 44 times. In 30 cases, it's used of Jesus Christ. In eight cases, it is used of God the Father. In the remaining cases, it could refer to the Father or Jesus. In other words, kurios, the Lord, is used interchangeably for both Jesus and the Father. Paul is saying, look at the one that, that saved you. The one who died and shed his blood is none other than the Son of God. Christ is Lord. Stott says, the Lord is a symbol of Christ's victory over the forces of evil. If Jesus has been exalted over the principalities and powers of evil, as indeed he has, this is the reason why he's called Lord. And if Jesus has been proclaimed Lord as he has, it is because these powers are under his feet. He has conquered them on the cross and therefore our salvation, that is to say our rescue from sin, Satan, Fear and death is due to his victory. Jesus is Lord. Third, Jesus is Lord means he rules over his people and his church. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. But notice, Paul says, to believe that Jesus is Lord is also to believe that he's risen from the dead. And this is as it were the second truth of the fundamental core of the gospel. This is God's testimony and proof that the one who died is the one who said he is the son of God. The resurrection proves that everyone who came to Christ and believed on him is justified from your sin. As Paul says in Romans 4.25, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. The resurrection is God's proof that the penalty for your transgressions is paid in full. He is risen. And as he is risen, so you will be too. So here we are in in the middle of this section 
And then this confession is followed by this amazing summons. And I believe this is what compels us to go to missions because once you get the realization that he's the sole savior, there can be no one else. Then you say, it's my gospel. I must take it. And that's where he goes for the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. He goes back to what he said about the stumbling block. Those who didn't believe stumbled, but those who believe will not be disappointed. In Isaiah, it will not be ashamed. You're not going back into exile. You are in Christ. You are shielded by the wrath of God and you are his forever, eternally. And based on his salvation, you have a hope that can never be taken, as First Peter says. Amazing, isn't it? And then he goes, for there's no distinction, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever, listen to this tonight. Some of you have been sitting here thinking, yeah, I love this. I I believe this. I know Jesus is the sole savior. No, no. Is he your savior? Have you called upon him and said, Lord, my righteousness is bankrupt. I acknowledge it. You see right through me and I wanted you to know, Lord, that I'm coming here bare, exposed. And Lord, I recognize that Jesus is Lord. I believe it. And I believe you've, You're risen from the dead. And so, Lord, I call upon you. Help me. I need a righteousness I don't have. Let me tell you, listen, all, without exception, all, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Christ is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. He's the seed of Abraham to bless the nations. He's the greatest prophet for he himself is the word of God. He's the son of David who's given an everlasting kingdom. He's the Lord, our righteousness. The one John the Baptist declares is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the compelling message of the gospel. His righteousness alone summons Muslims in every corner to renounce their religious works Don't trust in Muhammad. Muhammad wasn't risen from the dead. Muhammad is dead. Every Hindu person to forsake their gods, they're empty. They're just vanity. Bow to the one through whom and to whom God has made all things. And tonight God's word could not be more clear. Have you believed in your heart that Jesus is Lord? And have you confessed with your mouth that this one is your risen Savior? If he's not Lord of all of you, of every area of your life, he's not Lord at all. Because it's his righteousness alone, and that alone is what God sees. Bow to him tonight. As we come to the table, remind yourself that you have nothing to offer. Christ has given it all. Let me pray. Father, we are amazed to consider, Lord, that 
you presented a message, the gospel, in the form of your son who fulfilled the penalty as we are about to remember now as we take the Lord's Supper. It's a message, Lord, that we can find our righteousness in none other. Lord, I have to confess that I I sometimes keep my mouth silent when I should keep, when I should open it. And Lord, I pray, even tonight as I come to the table, you would stir me to to come back to the foot of Jesus. And Lord, we want to be used by you. We want to proclaim with boldness this Savior. Use us, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.